This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Everyone, welcome to our community education video. Today we're talking about five things when someone is actively dying and I'm joined by Dr. Eric Bush, who's the Chief Medical Officer for Hospice of the Chesapeake and Chesapeake Supportive Care. So tender topic, actively yeah. dying. I feel like we should have first start with that term because a lot of people dying is dying. So what does actively dying mean? Yeah, no, I appreciate what you're saying. I think especially in the context of the COVID pandemic and now, unfortunately, the U.S. having eclipsed 400,000 lives lost um, more than in World War II, I, I think it's on everybody's minds. Um, actively dying is really that final phase of life here, uh, you know, when God's calling you home. So typically, usually those last three days. Okay. And what you see is you tend to see drop in blood pressure, um, the patient, your loved one, tends to be less responsive, if responsive at all. Okay. Um, sometimes they can have a little bit, you'll hear about the rattle that they may have. And what that is, is the body just relaxing, or you can think about it as disengaging, is the way I think about it. Okay. Um, the muscles in the back of the throat are relaxing, so people are no longer able to clear those secretions, um, there's often changes in breathing pattern. So, and especially as people get closer, they can actually have pauses in their breathing and then may try to recover and have several, you know, rapid breaths that, that chain stokes breathing that people talk about. Right. Um, and, and color changes. So color changes in their fingers and toes, typically the areas that are furthest from the heart. Um, Again, as the heart relaxes, as the body relaxes, and there's less blood flow to those areas furthest from it, um, you can see almost a purplish lacy discoloration that we call modeling, M-O-T-T-L-I-N-G. And it, it doesn't hurt. It's not causing your loved one distress. Um, it's just another indicator that things are changing for them, you know, and, and God's calling them home at that time. Gotcha. So you went over um, several of the physical signs, which was one of my, my second question. When you, you say sort of that active stage takes, you know, roughly is the three day, is that about, is there any like specific yeah. time period when someone is dying at the end? No, so usually before that act, that quote unquote actively dying time frame, there's a period of time where we call transitioning. And that's usually at least several days before the actively dying phase. And at that time, somebody is less responsive, but maybe they'll give you one or two word answers to questions if you give them, you know, well-focused questions or queries, or maybe they'll nod their head yes or no. But again, it's all in line with that whole disengagement process. Right. Um, and that three days, you know, 
I, I tell people God keeps me honest with what I do. Uh, sometimes it's three days, sometimes it's seven days. Um, our approach, our focus for that time of life is making sure people are comfortable. Right. And once we've been able to achieve that comfort level, we just take it a day at a time um, because there's so many things that are still unknown that we don't understand in this world that as long as somebody appears to be symptomatically managed, right. um, whatever that time frame is, it is because it, it varies uh, from person to person that I can tell you. Yeah. So, all right, we covered sort of the definition, the timing, some of the physical symptoms. I want to add a, a, a sub-question about eating, because I'm, I'm sure this sure. can cause stress for families when their loved one sort of during this end of life process doesn't want to, isn't engaged in food. There's so much in our culture and in our oh, yeah. food is love, right? So right. that's... Right that's one thing that that seems to kind of cause stress for folks can you talk a little bit about that process and and what happens with that sure you're right so food is so highly ingrained in our culture and uh, as well as illness if you think about the first time you were sick you know what was the first thing your mother said to you is that you got to eat to get better and um but this time when somebody's at a time of life it's it's different and people take in what they need and they're not taking in anything, that's what they need at that time. It's um, unsafe for them to eat. If you think about back to what we're talking about, the swallowing and how those muscles relax, there's no way for them to be able to get food down safely. Um, the other piece too is it does not limit someone's life expectancy. People in general can go up to 30 days without food, um, without fluids, seven days is textbook, but usually seven to 10, uh, somewhere in that time frame. And so um, as you're disengaging and as you're going naturally, just think about what your body is utilizing from a caloric perspective, um, really very minimal. And so you're able to uh, get on day after day without eating. It's not causing anybody pain. It's not causing them harm. It's not causing discomfort. It's just naturally what they need at that time. Um, I really, I really think it's helpful that phrase that you use, the disengaging, because yeah. that that really kind of explains it in a in a really helpful way. Right. Well, one thing I did want to mention is that um, in that whole disengagement process, I actually had the question this morning on, on rounds uh, with from patient's son, is there are two things that patients can still sense that is touch and it's almost reflexive in nature and they will respond to their loved one's touch more so than they would to mine in addition voice um, so we know that patients that hearing is one of the last senses to go that patients can hear up until the very end we're not sure obviously how much they can process but again um, they if they're going to respond at all they tend to respond better to their loved one's voice than they would the doc or the nurse that's in the room seeing them. That's not familiar to you, to them. Yeah, that makes Correct. sense. So, so that would be my fourth question then is, mm -hmm. is if your hearing is the last thing to go as a loved one, are there things that, you know, in your experience that seem helpful or comforting to say or not to say sort of any guidance in that? Yeah. So treat your loved one as 
you were treating them their whole lives. Um, people's character logic, uh, people's personality does not change at that time of life. If anything, those things are only enhanced. So think, you know, reminisce with them, tell them things you think they'd want to hear, things that would be comforting or soothing. We know that those are things that the patients will find soothing. And it's often, you know, therapeutic for the loved ones too as well. Um, we realize what a, you know, frightening time of life this can be when you're losing a loved one. And so I think this is an important topic. I appreciate bringing it up, um, especially, again, context of what's transpired with COVID. Right. It's become a lot more pertinent. Um, I think just like everything else, the more education you have, the more you know what to expect and what you can do to help address those issues, the better off you are. Yeah, absolutely. I think my final, my fifth question that, that comes, that I've heard a lot anyway, is about pain management and specifically morphine and the dying process um, and the, the concern that that could speed up or cause harm um, when somebody's at the end of their life. Can you just touch on that a little bit? Yeah, it's so in general, it doesn't. Obviously, each uh, situation can be individual, but our approach here is we start with pediatric doses of, you know, morphine, and um, it is not something that hastens death. It only provides comfort, whether it's for pain or shortness of breath. That's another thing a lot of times people don't realize for a lot of patients with um, pulmonary issues. Again, whether it's it's emphysema or pulmonary fibrosis or other progressive issues, um, it really helps relieve the sense of breathlessness right. for the patient. So, and these things do not hasten death. Um, you know, sometimes you'll pick up the news and you hear about these situations uh, where opioids did cause somebody's demise. Those are way higher doses than are used, you know, at this time of life. Got it. Got it. So this is just another helpful tool for making it as, as exactly exactly possible. All right. Thank you, Dr. Bush. I know. Sure. Thanks, I, I I agree with you. This is a it's it's hard to think about and to to talk about, but it is when you're in that situation, it's helpful to understand sort of what yeah. to expect. So yeah. thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. I also want to thank the John and Kathy Belcher Institute for their generous support of the community education programs at Hospice of the Chesapeake. Thanks.